Hopefully in Luke chapter 13, you made it there in all this time. For those of who are unaware, a pulpit committee is a group of people who are are tasked with finding a pastor for a church. And a pulpit committee has been defined as, quote, a group of people in search of a man who will be totally fearless and uncompromising as he tells us exactly what we want to hear, end quote. <laughs> and sadly, that statement holds true in many churches today. And many people are, uh, are trying to accumulate to themselves teachers that will tickle their ears. And we've really seen that in this last year uh, play itself out. I suspect that if Jesus had sent out resumes uh, to modern-day pulpit committees, he wouldn't get past a lot of them. It's not because he wasn't righteous or anything like that, but because he's not in the habit of telling people what they want to hear. He's in the habit of telling people what they need to hear. And though Jesus always seemingly attracted large crowds when he would preach, he was equally adept at offending those people and causing them to leave. And he would do that on a number of occasions. He would speak truth to them and they would say, this is too hard for us. And they would walk away. Perhaps Jesus uh, offended people because he wouldn't allow the general population to determine his message. He would never get caught up in their religious or social or political agendas. Regardless of what was happening around Israel, religiously, Jesus didn't use that as a, a platform to speak to the people and try to relate with them. Now he did criticize the religious leaders, but he did that to their faces. And Jesus never got political. Whatever was happening politically in Israel, Jesus never got involved in that because that wasn't what he came to do. He never got involved in the social aspects or the social agendas of people. He would always take those attempts, and there were a number of attempts to get Jesus to comment on these things. He would always take those attempts and turn them back to the central purpose for which he came, and that was the message of the gospel. In a series of lessons that started in the beginning of chapter 11 and continued through verse 9 of chapter 13, Jesus taught essential lessons to those who were gathered to his disciples and a, a, a massive multitude of people. Despite the fact that on at least three occasions, they tried, someone in the crowd tried to change the direction that Jesus was going. So he began in chapter 11 with the disciples asking Jesus to teach us to pray. So he gives what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, and then that was followed by a parable of the friend of midnight, which is basically telling us we should pray all times because God loves us more than any human being could possibly love us. And then in chapter 11, verses 14 through 26, the, this is by far the biggest issue that really changed the direction of the, the messages of Jesus, the method of Jesus. He cast out a demon and the religious leaders, the leaders of the land, accused Jesus of being able to cast out demons because he was working with Satan. And that level of blasphemy that took place at that moment changed the message that Jesus would give to the people from that day on. And then that brought about the first interruption right after that, after Jesus confronted the foolishness of the claim that he worked for Satan. A woman in the crowd yelled out, blessed is the womb that bore you. And Jesus, rather than being distracted and saying, yes, my mom was great and she's, you know, you should see the pie she makes or anything like that. He stays with his purpose and he says, no, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So he wouldn't allow himself to get distracted there. And and even talk about something good. There'd been nothing wrong for Jesus to to say, yes, I love my mother and she was a great woman and, and she found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's why he chose her to be my mother. And he could have said all those things which would have been true and good, but he didn't want to get distracted from his purpose for being there. Jesus then referred to the crowd as a wicked generation who only seek for signs, but they ignore the biggest one, which was right in front of them, which was he himself. 
At lunch that day, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home, and the Pharisee in his heart is criticizing Jesus for not washing his hands before they eat. And Jesus then turns the situation back onto the Pharisee. And he says, he pronounces woes on the Pharisees and the lawyers that are in the room. He says to the Pharisees, you're like cups that are clean on the outside, but inside you're full of wickedness. And then the the lawyer said, hey, when you say that to them, you offend us. He said, don't worry, I've got something for you too. Woe to you lawyers. Because you put expectations on people that you yourselves won't even fulfill. And in doing so, you actually lock and hide the door to heaven. And people who think they're doing religious things and making their way to heaven and pleasing God are not really doing that. Then he told his disciples, he turned back to them after lunch and said, Beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he made sure he told them, You must love God rather than men. That brought about the second interruption. As Jesus was speaking with his disciples, a man in the crowd yells out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus again refuses to get involved with the domestic dispute. Instead, he warns, he uses an opportunity to warn against greed and loving the things of this world. And he gives the parable of the rich fool who was building up all kinds of wealth on earth but was not rich toward God. And he brings back to the bottom line is you need to be rich toward God and not rich toward this world. And then he says, seek first the kingdom. That is focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. Live in anticipation of the return of the Lord, that He come back at any time and be like the servants that are always busy and they're working no matter what time their master returns. And then Jesus said some shocking things. He said, I came to cast fire on the earth. And I came to cause division in amongst family members. I came to chastise people. And he chastised them for being able to read the sky and the weather and not read the signs of the spiritual temperature. They'd ignored that. And he warns them to be reconciled to God before it's too late. And that brings the third interruption, which is in our text in chapter 13. Another person in the crowd wants Jesus to comment on a, on a political hot button of the moment. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. He uses it rather as an opportunity to speak of the importance of repentance. As I mentioned, the lessons begin in chapter 11, verse 1, stretch all the way through chapter 13, verse 9, all one event. But as Jesus wraps up this series of lessons, he speaks of first the importance of repentance. The importance of repentance in verse Chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Now on the same occasion, there was there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There's no biblical record of the event that's being mentioned here. Luke is the only one who mentions it. But it is consistent with the, the activity of men like Pontius Pilate. And other historical records tell us of other atrocities that took place. Josephus, who is a first century historian, records the killing of 6,000 Pharisees by Alexander Janus that happened some 75, 80 years before Christ showed up on the planet. Other historical documents record Herod Archelaus killing 3,000 Jews during a Passover protest. Pilate ordered the death of several Samaritans who were uh, acting in rebellion to, in defiance to Pilate's rules. And there's other examples of taking, uh, making examples of small groups of people or individuals during large celebrations or gatherings just as a warning to everybody else. So the way the, one of the ways the Romans ruled the Jews was they allowed them to do pretty much whatever they wanted as long as they paid taxes and behaved. And as soon as it looked like they weren't going to be behaving, they just came in and killed a few people as, as in order to get everybody's attention. So the, the, the thought is regarding what was happening here was that Pilate decided to use some Galileans who were in the temple sacrificing as an example to behave. For whatever they were doing, whatever attitudes they had, or whatever they might have said, Pilate had them killed 
in, in a way to get everybody else to fall in line and not rebel. So the thought is something along these lines that these men from Galilee who had come down to Jerusalem. They were at the temple. They'd obviously done something, caused some kind of ruckus, but they were in the temple sacrificing when they were killed. Now, in the sacrifices, it was the priest who took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. But it was the one who was bringing the sacrifice who was responsible for slitting the animal's throat. So if you were bringing a sacrifice in the temple, you would take this perfect lamb or whatever it was you were sacrificing, and you would lay your hand on its head, making it like your representative, and then you would take the knife and reach down and cut its throat, and you would collect the blood. Then you would give that blood to the priest who would then sprinkle it on the altar. So the thought is something along the lines of, as these men were slitting the throats of their animal sacrifices... The Roman soldiers, ordered by Pilate, came in and killed them with a sword. And when they did that, their own blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifice, making it null and void, making it unuseful. So it was apparently a recent event that was fresh in the mind of the Jews. Most seemed to be aware of it. And someone in the crowd there at that time that Jesus is speaking wants him to comment on this, hoping Jesus will say something, maybe about the evil uh, works of Pilate, what Pilate did that was so wrong, or comment on the character of the men who were killed. And Jesus refuses to make a political statement. Instead, he uses it to make a spiritual point. He didn't come to speak politically. He didn't come for political reform. He came to bring about spiritual reform. And the truth of the matter is, folks, the only thing that will ever change the political tone of our nation is if there's spiritual revival. Nothing else is going to do it. It really doesn't matter who we vote for and get in office if there's not a spiritual change in the hearts of people. The political change means nothing. It's ultimately meaningless. Because the wickedness of men will still rule the day. And Jesus didn't come to make political reforms, but to bring about spiritual reforms, because that's the only thing that really matters. So he uses the opportunity to speak about the importance of repentance. And he says in verse 2, Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? The prevailing thought among many people, perhaps most Jews during that day, was bad things happen to bad people. If bad things happen, it's because it was deserved. It was God's way of punishing them. You might remember when Jesus and the disciples were walking at the, around the outside of the temple and they saw the beggar there who had been born blind. And the disciples ask a question of Jesus and they're very sincere in their question. They ask Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because he was blind, they naturally assumed it is the result of some sin. His parents sinned in some way, and as a punishment for their sin, they gave them a child who was blind from birth. Or God knew that this man would commit some egregious sin, and so punished him from birth with blindness. They just assumed naturally that one of the two was true. The thought was of these Galileans who were murdered, That they must have done something sinful. And it was God's punishment on them. Common thought among most Jews in Jerusalem were were that Jews in Galilee were less spiritual than Jews in Jerusalem. The reasoning was this. If you're really spiritual, if you're a really spiritual Jew, you will be sacrificing in the temple on a regular basis. Not just on four times a year when you're required. You'll your life will center around the temple. Now, if you're in Galilee, way up in the north, 70 miles away, you're not going to travel to the temple except when you have to. But if you're really spiritual Jew, then you live in Jerusalem, so you could go to the temple all the time. You live in that area. So the thought was, if you're a Jew living in Galilee, you're less than spiritual. You're much less spiritual than the Jews living in Jerusalem. So the thought was they must they must have done something wrong. They were obviously worse sinners than anyone else because they live up in Galilee. Jesus says to them in verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I tell you no, the 
Jesus, the ESV gets it right here. It says, no, I say to you. And that's the way it's written in the Greek. No is in the emphatic position. It leads the verse. Do you think these Galileans were greater sinners than others? You say, no way. That's not the, that's not the case. They were not worse sinners. They're no different than any other human being. They are sinners in need of repentance. The biggest danger of believing that God allowed them to be killed because they were worse sinners than others was what it implies about the survivors. If these are killed because they were worse sinners and I'm not killed, that must mean I'm more righteous than they are. And that leads to the health and wealth, prosperity gospel. If I'm healthy and wealthy, then I must be righteous. And that was the exact thought of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If they were healthy and wealthy, it's because they were righteous. And Jesus is making it clear that nothing could be further from the truth. He says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He's trying to destroy this philosophy that only the wicked suffer, only the evil die. And saying, unless you repent, you're going to suffer the same kind of fate. Not that you're going to be killed in the temple by Pilate's soldiers, but you're going to die and you're going to face eternal judgment. You need to repent. He adds another contemporary event to drive drive home his point in verse 4. Or you just suppose that the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and were killed were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem. Well, if the thought was they're Galileans, they're less spiritual, uh, that's why they died. Jesus says, well, what about the 18 men who died right outside the city limits of Jerusalem? They lived in Siloam, which is the pool where Jesus healed the man. It was right outside. You can almost see the temple from it. And a tower apparently fell and, and killed 18 people in Jerusalem, right outside Jerusalem. And Jesus said, do you think they were worse? Not only that, the first event was a premeditated atrocity. Pilate sends in troops to kill certain men, and they do. The collapse of the Tower of Siloam was an accident. An unexpected event. Those people weren't just standing there going, gee, I wonder if this tower is going to fall on us. And it did. They were just going about life and it collapsed and killed 18 people. So Jesus is making the contrast here. The first is premeditated. The second was a tragic accident. One is Galileans. The other are people who live in in and around Jerusalem. Do you think they're worse sinners? Do you think these 18 deserve to die more than any other person living in Jerusalem? Were there some secret sin that they had that no one else had? You know, we could ask similar questions today if we're not careful, right? Why do, why do some people get cancer and die? Why do some die of sudden heart attacks? Why do planes full of people crash and everybody dies? Why do buildings collapse and kill people? Why do earthquakes destroy towns leaving hundreds if not thousands of people dead? Is it because these people were worse sinners than everyone else? Is God punishing them because they deserve it more than others? Again, Jesus answers the question in verse 5, I tell you no. ESV gets it right again. No, I say to you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, Jesus is emphatic. This has nothing to do with the personal sin of the individual's. It's something that happens to everybody. Everybody dies somehow. That's just the nature of it. That was, that was determined back in the Garden of Eden. And the day you eat this fruit, you will die. And there was a spiritual death that was then followed by a physical death. And the wages of sin is death. And we are all sinners and we're all going to pay the wages one day. Unless we happen to be here when the Lord returns for us. This tower falling is a disaster. It could happen to anyone. And that's Jesus' point. Because that's true, He said, you better repent before something like this happens to you. 
You better repent before you get on an airplane. You better repent before you get in your car and drive down the road. You better repent while you can. Because the day may come when it's too late for you to repent. When I was in high school, I shared the gospel with a friend of mine named Paul. We were the same age. And and Paul thought, I have plenty of time, which we all thought when we were in high school, that we've got plenty of time. But his thought was, I have plenty of time to decide whether or not I want to follow Christ. And four years later, he died in a tragic automobile accident. He really didn't have plenty of time. He died as a 22-year-old young man. Still thinking he had plenty of time. Jesus would respond the same way today. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why did that plane crash and those people die? Jesus wouldn't answer the question why. He would say, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. What about this friend of mine who just had a heart attack and died? Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Jesus isn't getting into the whys. He's not saying why these things happen. He's saying, here's what your response needs to be before something like that happens to you. The most important decision you can make in your life is not why bad things happen. The most important decision you can make in your life is to repent and get right with God. There's nothing more important. It's more important than answering the question, why do bad things happen? Repentance is so crucial you can't be saved without it. That brings us to the important issue, the meaning of repentance. What does it mean to repent? Well, the basic meaning of repentance is to, is to turn away from something and turn to something else. That's the basic meaning. Wayne Grudem defines it well when he says, quote, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ, end quote. Repentance is not only important, but it's essential to our life in Christ. Repentance requires, I'm going to give you three things that repentance requires. It requires first a change of affection. Repentance requires a change of affection. I don't believe it's up there. We love the pleasures of sin, don't we? We... Love the instant gratification that sin provides. If we didn't, we wouldn't do it. But repentance comes when we realize the sinfulness of our sin, particularly in light of the holiness of God. And that produces in us a sorrow and a grief over that sin. While the pleasures of sin are what attract us and draw, and draw us to the sin and keep us in its grip, it's the grief and the sorrow over that sin that leads us to repentance. There's a change of affection in our heart. We start with an affection for the effects of the sin. And when we realize the wickedness of it, there's a change of the affection. And that affection needs to be more towards God and less toward the sin. One of the Hebrew words for repentance is nachem. And it's used to describe the type of mourning that takes place when a family member dies. After Jacob was told that his son Joseph had been killed by a wild animal in Genesis 37-35 says, Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. That's the word Nacham right there. He refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Jacob was inconsolable over the death of his son. And that's the word used for repentance, that we are to be inconsolable over our sin. We are to be inconsolable regarding the presence of sin in our life. 
It is to be that level of grief and that level of sorrow that until it is taken care of, we are inconsolable. When there's a change of affection, when we love God more than we love the sin, that leads us to shame and sorrow over our sin and that leads us to that repentance. In other words, if you're not truly sorrowful for your sin, you're not really repenting. That's why the Puritan said, even my repentance needs repenting. After all that Job had suffered, he began to question God's love and fairness. And then God responds to Job, to Job I said Joseph, Job is who I meant. After all that Job had suffered, he questioned God's fairness and God's love. And God responds to Job over the next four chapters, extolling the fact that he is God and Job is not. And when he's finished, Job says in Job 42, verses 3 through 6, Job addresses God and says, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here now, and I will speak, I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, I am so sorry, God, that I question you. I'm going to sit here in, in dust and ashes. After Paul wrote a severe letter to the church at Corinth, he wrote the first letter and, and there was not the response that he expected, so he wrote what is called the severe letter. We don't have it. It's not in our Bible. And then when he found out how the people responded to the severe letter, he wrote 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, he said, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So Paul is saying, I am grateful, I'm thankful that whatever I said in my letter caused you to be so sorrowful for your sin that it led to you to repentance. Sorrow is necessary for repentance. Genuine repentance requires a change of our affection. It impacts our emotion. It leads us to remorse over our actions and grief over our attitudes. And that drives us to repentance. So repentance requires a change of affection. Secondly, repentance requires a change of actions. Repentance requires a change of actions. Without a change of action, there's no true repentance. And there must be a turning from sin to something else. Israel was taken captive because of their years of neglect of God's commands. Specifically, the Sabbath land, the land Sabbath law. But they had not repented even after the captivity in Daniel chapter 9 verses 13 and 14 while they're still in captivity. Daniel says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all His deeds which He has done. But we have not obeyed His voice. In other words, Daniel is saying, listen, as a nation we have yet to repent. Because we're still doing the same things that we've always done. We're still disobeying as we've always done. Jeremiah speaking in similar Situation, Jeremiah 35, 15, says also, this is God speaking now, also I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, turn now everyone from his evil ways and amend your deeds and do not go after the other gods to worship them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you to your forefathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. 
Again, God is saying, I want to bless you. I want to do these things for you. But you're not listening to me. You've not yet repented. Oh, they were sorry they were living in captivity. They regretted the fact that they were no longer living in their homeland. But they had yet to repent. When we confess sin, but then choose to continue in that sin, we have not repented. Just agreeing with God that it's wrong is not repentance. There's a massive difference between sorrow over sin and sorrow over the consequences of sin. Prisons are filled with people who are sorry for the consequences of their sin, but are not repentant. True repentance is a change in direction. It's an about face. And if there's no change in the direction, then there's no repentance. It doesn't matter how much you're grieved over that sin. It doesn't matter how sorrowful you are, how much you hate it in your life. If you don't turn from it, then you've not repented. Repentance is a change of sinful actions, sinful attitudes, and sinful addictions. Repentance requires a change of affection and a change of action. And third, repentance requires a change of attitude. Requires a change of attitude. There's a fundamental shift in our attitude towards sin and its appeal. We start to see the sinfulness of sin. We start to hate it the way God hates it. We must see our sin the way God sees our sin. As repulsive. As offensive. If we retain the attitude that our sin is not that bad, or that it's okay, then we've not repented. If our heart attitude towards sin is not, this is terrible, this is disgusting, this is offensive, then there's no real repentance. Oh, there may be sorrow over the consequences of getting caught. But there must be a genuine shift in the attitude. Otherwise, we're like the child who was jumping up and down on the couch and his dad said, son, stop jumping on the couch and sit down. And the kid sits down and says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm jumping up and down on the inside. When we don't repent over our sin and change our attitude, we're no different. We may even stop the action, but there's still no repentance if we're longing for that sin. And we still have that appeal. There must be a fundamental shift in our attitude. And that shift only takes place when our attitudes are shaped by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. That's why there must be a turning from something to a turning to something. I can't tell you how many people I have met with over the years who have been struggling with a particular sin. Let's say pornography. That men are struggling with pornography and they're, they're sorrowful that they're doing this and they hate the fact that they're, they feel addicted to this and they want to put it off and they've tried to stop cold turkey a number of times, but they fail to put on Christ. They try to turn from the sin, but they never turn to Christ. And for repentance to be complete is to turn from the sin, to turn to Christ. The only way for your mind to change about the sin, your attitude to change toward the sin, is to have it shaped by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. When our attitude towards sin reflects God's attitude towards sin, then there's a turning from the sin and turning to God. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He preached a very hard message to the thousands of Jews that were listening to him about the crucifixion of Christ. And he wraps up in Acts chapter 2, starting verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God had made 
Him, that's Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was the end of the message. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were grieved. They were sorrowful. There was a change in their attitude. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? In other words, they, they recognized right away it wasn't enough just to be sorrowful for what they had done. They, they needed to turn from what they had done and turn to God. What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we do? Now that we're grieved, what do we do? We repent. We turn from the sin. We turn to God. We put on Christ. We put off the old man and we put on the new man. We put off the sin and we put on Christ. We stop giving ourselves over to sin. Instead, instead give ourselves over to God. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, Paul writes, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Don't just keep living your life and say, I'm sorry for that sin. I don't want to do that anymore. It's not enough to say that. You have to take yourself out of the grip of that sin and put yourself in the hands of God. And say, God, you take my heart. You take my mind. You take my desires. And you do what you want. Conform me to the image of Christ. book, Biblical Doctrines, summarizes repentance this way. Biblical repentance is not a mere change of thinking, though it does involve an intellectual acknowledgement of sin and a change of attitude toward it. Neither is it merely shame or sorrow for sin, though genuine repentance always involves an element of remorse. True biblical repentance is also a, a redirection of the human will. A purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. Thus, genuine repentance involves the mind, the heart, and the will. If your repentance hasn't involved those things, the heart, the mind, and the will, it's not true repentance. You may be grieved over sin and you may be grieved over the consequences of the sin. But there's not repentance until you've turned from it to Christ. And this isn't just talking about salvation. Obviously, that's the guts of salvation. To turn from slavery to sin in this world, slavery to Satan, and put yourself in the hands of God confessing Him as Lord. But this is true in our relation as believers to God. Sin still rears its ugly head and seeks to enslave us. Be it an attitude, be it an action. And true repentance requires us to grieve over that sin. If you're not grieved over your sin, and you claim to be a believer... It is probably because you have been involved in it so long that you have quenched the Holy Spirit so you don't even hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore. In which case, you need to beg God to bring about conviction in your heart. That there'll be a genuine sorrow, a genuine grief, a change in thinking so there can be a change of action. This is what Jesus was talking about when He said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless there's a fundamental change in your thinking, 
in your affections, in your attitudes, in your actions, you're going to perish. Jesus wraps it up with genuine repentance is recognized by the fruit of repentance. It's recognized by the fruit of repentance. Jesus gives the parable of the barren fig tree. Verse 6, he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which he had planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Fig trees were common in Israel. Jesus didn't pick the tree by accident. Israel's been described as a fig tree a few times in Scripture. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 says Israel's like figs. Micah 11, Israel is fruitless, no figs to eat. Jeremiah 24, the entire chapter, so 10 verses in Jeremiah 24. The whole chapter is, a, is describing Israel as two baskets of figs. There's a basket of good figs and there's a basket of very bad figs and you can't even eat them because they're rotten. So when Jesus uses this illustration, this parable of the fig tree, it's intended to speak of Israel's fruitlessness. And he says, I've been looking for fruit on this tree for three years. It's no coincidence that the ministry of Jesus lasted three years. He says, but I've not found any. And in his frustration, the owner of the vineyard tells the vineyard keeper, cut it down. Why does it even waste the ground? Why is it using up the nutrients in the ground that can be used by fruitful trees? Why does it soak up the groundwater that could be used to strengthen and make other trees even more fruitful? Get rid of it. Verse 8, he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. He says, let it last one more season. Let's try one more season. Let's see if we can get it to produce fruit one more time. And if it doesn't after that, we'll use it for firewood. Jesus is issuing a warning to the crowd that they must repent There must be genuine repentance. There must be a change in affection, a change in attitude, a change in action. And that change will be accompanied by fruit. It will be evident. How many people claim to be believers, but there's no evidence? They claim to be Christians, but you can't tell. They point to an outline of a fish on the back of their car. See, I'm a Christian. Look. They walk into church on Sunday and say, Look, I'm a Christian. See? When we are trend, genuine believers, we're genuinely repentant. There is genuine fruit. There's evidence. Jesus says you repent before it's too late. Consider the warning of John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from the stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And then John says this, The axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These Pharisees and Sadducees who thought they were right with God because they were wealthy and they were healthy and therefore God was pleased with them. John says the axe is already getting ready to chop down the tree and if there's no fruit, it's going to be firewood. If you're genuinely repentant, John says, then you will show the fruit of that repentance. 
Consider the visual parable that Jesus performs during Passion Week. He's already had the triumphal entry. He's gone back to Bethany. He's coming back the next morning in Matthew 8 or, or 21, verse 18. It says, Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit on you. And at once the fig tree withered. This is a visual parable of what was going to happen to the nation of Israel because they lacked the fruit of repentance. They were going to be shriveled up. That happened in 70 AD. Jesus is calling the nation of Israel and all of us who read it since then to genuine repentance and the genuine fruit of repentance. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, you're very familiar. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Does that characterize your life? Are those characteristics evident in your life? Love? Joy? Peace? Patience? Kindness? Goodness? Faithfulness? Gentleness? Self-control? This is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. He continued, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The fruit is often, as we see here in the fruit of the Spirit, borne out in the way that we treat other people. In our relationships. John the Baptist, again, was asked by some of the people who came to be baptized about repentance. They asked him, what shall we do? John says in Luke chapter 13, starting, or chapter 3 rather, verse, uh, starting verse 11. John says, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some of the tax collectors also came to, to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you've been ordered to. Some of the soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by, by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. What, what is the evidence of our repentance? Well, it's in your attitudes. It's your actions. It's the way you live. It's how you care about other people. In John chapter 15, As Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, He says to the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in Me, He's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in Me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God expects us to not just say that we're Christians, but to display it in the way that we live. That genuine repentance produces fruit. Evidence in our lives that we belong to Christ. Our God is a God of patience. But He's also a God of judgment. Again, Matthew 3.10, The axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. 
Those who don't know Christ, you start with the repentance. Sorrow over your sin, grief over that sin, begging God to forgive you of that sin, confessing Christ as Lord, putting off the old man and putting on the new man, becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus, seeking to honor Him and serve Him. Those of us who know Him, don't become complacent in this world. Don't get wrapped up in the nonsense that's going on in the world so your only focus is political or social. Your focus needs to be spiritual. Your focus needs to be on a relationship with Jesus Christ. Make sure you're not overtaken by sinful actions or attitudes. But genuinely repent. Turn from the things of this world and turn to Christ. Put on Christ. Bear the fruit of a believer. That's the only thing that's going to make a difference in this world anyway. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your love and mercy. Father, so grateful that You even made it possible for us to repent. You didn't have to do that. But by Your love and Your mercy... You allow us to repent. Father, not only do You allow us to repent, You prompt us to repent by giving us Your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness so that, Father, we can we can see the sin in our life so that we can repent. Father, we confess that we are a people who love sin. We often love what you hate. We often love the immediate pleasures of sin. Father, search us. Try us. See any wicked thing in us that we might repent and be right with You. Father, forgive us when we love our sin more than You. Father, help us to be Your children that bear the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of repentance. That, Father, You might be glorified And we might be light in this world. And Father, because you know every heart in the room, I beg you to bring to repentance, genuine repentance, anyone here that doesn't know you. Be they a child, be they an adult. Father, if they don't know you, if they've not truly repented, I pray that your Spirit would draw them to Christ. Bring them to genuine repentance today for their good and your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.